This morning, we're going to be looking at Jesus's miraculous feeding of the 5,000. And I was wondering why our pastors assigned this particular message for me to preach, but then I realized that the key to a college student's heart is free food. And I also love free food, and so why not give the free food passage to the college missionary? So last week, Pastor Carlos came and shared about spiritual disciplines. His message from Scripture called us to give our first minutes and our first dollars to God as we become believers with a firm foundation in spiritual discipline. And I'll be continuing our series this morning talking about personal ministry. Say it, personal ministry. So to give us a simple working definition for our time this morning, our personal ministry extends from the personal time that we have with God in prayer or Scripture, um, being believers, but our personal ministry is our faith in action. It's fueled by the Spirit of God and the believer of Jesus Christ. And I want to warn you now, we're going to be unpacking our text for a little bit before we turn back to talk more specifically about personal ministry. If you have your Bible with me, with you, feel free to turn to Mark chapter 6. That's where we're going to be this morning. And if not, we're going to have the verses up on the screen. But before we jump in, let me go ahead and pray. Father, thank you so much for bringing us here and giving us this opportunity to be together in worship and fellowship and in teaching. And God, if there's any word um, that I speak that's not of you, God, help it to fall on the floor. But if there is just one word from you that you want to share with us this morning, would you help us to have our eyes open, our ears open, and soft hearts to receive from your scripture this morning? Amen. So as we open the Gospel of Mark this morning, I want to share that it is easily my favorite book in the Bible. It is believed to be the very first written gospel or the, the account of Jesus' life. It's also the shortest. And what I love about Mark is the way that he writes is he gets to the point very quickly. Mark is also important to me because it was the gospel that truly caused me to fall in love with the Bible and with Jesus for the first time for real as an adult. My freshman year in college at Cal State Northridge, I was invited to go to Catalina Island with InterVarsity on my campus to study the Gospel of Mark in an inductive manuscript st style, which I brought a picture of. It's a student um, using a lot of different colored pens and going really deep, figuring out um, what are the questions that we have and the observations we have in the text so that we can really learn from Scripture together in a group. Um, and since then, I've had the joy of leading college students myself to trips like that uh, over the past seven years. And this last spring break, we brought 88 students from Cal State Fullerton, Fullerton College, and Cypress College to Catalina during their spring break to get this, study the Bible eight hours a day. They did that. Uh, and uh, not only was my life continued to be transformed by this text, uh, but students received Jesus and were transformed at this last conference as well. So I love the Gospel of Mark. So we're going to start at the very beginning. Chapter 1 begins with this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus' first words are, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe in the good news. The Gospel of Mark is written to proclaim that the good news, the Gospel, is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus' first words in Mark were that the kingdom of God has come near, and he gives us our instructions to that, which is to repent and believe. And the first six chapters of Mark's gospel is the unfolding of that kingdom. 
The King Jesus has arrived, and he's establishing this new kingdom of God. And it's good news because the Messiah, the Son of God, is finally here. He's with us. And we see him casting out demons, preaching and teaching in ways that no one had seen before, healing the sick, and performing all sorts of miracles. And this is the great theme of Mark's gospel, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. And the way that we see it unfold as we read through the chapters is the ushering in of this new kingdom, the kingdom of God. He preaches stories about what the kingdom of God is like, and it's with his every word and action that we see the heart of the king of this particular kingdom. And it's in this backdrop that we find our passage in Mark chapter 6 this morning. But before Jesus feeds 5,000 people for free, we have this peculiar story that comes right before it that almost feels like it doesn't fit in Mark's gospel. Mark says that King Herod heard about Jesus' spreading fame and how some thought that Jesus was Elijah, others John the Baptist, and others a prophet like the prophets of long before. But Herod himself thought that Jesus was the return of John the Baptist, whom he had beheaded. And then Mark pivots from the past tense to the present tense to tell the crazy story of how King Herod beheaded John the Baptist and had his head brought out on a platter like a piece of meat to be served. It's a pretty messed up story. So I'll paraphrase it briefly. King Herod had arrested John the Baptist and had him imprisoned, but didn't want to do anything else to him because he knew that John was righteous and he was afraid of him. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for Herod and his guests. Herodias was Herod's brother's wife, but Herod took her as his own wife. Pretty messed up. So John the Baptist is in prison because that's not lawful, and he told them about that. And they didn't like that, so they threw him in prison. So Herodias' daughter dances, and Herod is so pleased that he promises her anything that she wants, anything at all. And so she goes back to Herodias and says, what should I ask for from Herod? Herodias, remembering and holding this grudge about what John the Baptist had said, says, ask him for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so Herod does it. So you may be thinking, we're here to talk about the feeding of 5,000 people, but why instead are we talking about brothers taking each other's wives and heads being served on platters? And when I study this passage with college students, they often ask the same question. What in the world is this doing here? The story of King Herod and the brutal and unfair death of John the Baptist is what happens right before Jesus feeds the 5,000. And furthermore, it happens within this theme of Mark that King Jesus is here, and he is bringing his kingdom. And it's in this account of Jesus' absolutely beautiful and wonderfully perfect kingdom, full of healing, confession and repentance, mercy and love, that Mark gives us this little aside to tell us the story of a broken worldly kingdom led by a broken worldly king who only speaks or acts to further his own agenda or benefit and will behead guys he's righteously afraid of because he's a people pleaser. And that sets up our story this morning. The kingdom of the world murders John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus and a close friend to his 12 disciples. So imagine with me, your close friend has just been beheaded. And before that, these 12 disciples had just been sent out from village to village 
to preach that uh, the kingdom of God was at hand and to repent and believe in the good news. And they were sent with no money, no bag, no extra clothes, no bread. So they were sent really relying on God into these places. They're tired, they're spent, they just got back from a missions trip and they need rest. So we're going to get really, really honest here with each other this morning. Are you ready to do something a little bit risky to be vulnerable? So I'm going to invite you to raise your hand if this is you, okay? Raise your hand if you have ever been tired. Okay, I think most of us have ever been tired. Some of you are thinking, I'm tired right now, okay? So that was a good moment of church transparency and vulnerability. But kidding aside, it's not too shocking that at this moment, these 12 disciples and Jesus are exhausted, And it's precisely in this exhaustion when they hear that John the Baptist, their friend and Jesus' cousin, has been beheaded and killed, the same man who baptized Jesus in the River Jordan and prepared the way for Jesus. So in verse 29, John's disciples hear about it, and they lay him in a proper tomb. So there is pain and anger and confusion and frustration and exhaustion. And then in verse 30, the apostles gather around Jesus and tell him about their missions trip. And Jesus, aware of their inner turmoil and chaos, and aware that they were so exhausted they didn't even have a chance to eat, says to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So imagine their response. Thank you, Jesus. This Airbnb better have some Tempur-Pedic mattresses or something, right? Can we cater in some Mastro's? Can we DoorDash some Chick-fil-A? They need rest. They need to eat. And more than anything else in their mind, they've earned it, right? They've completed their missions trip. They buried their friend. They need rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But... I love Mark's writing style. You see this so much in Mark. All of us are expecting that Jesus takes them away and they have this wonderful vacation filled with rest and solitude. And he does. But can you see where this is going? It's not going to go down the way they thought. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of him. And can you imagine it? No, Jesus, this was supposed to be our vacation. You told us we go to a quiet place and get some rest, and why are all of these people here? And so when Jesus landed and he sees the crowd, he got annoyed alongside his disciples and plotted their escape to a five-star resort. No, he didn't do that. Thank God that we worship King Jesus and not King Herod. Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and so he began to teach them many things. And have you ever heard of sheep? They're not smart, like at all, not even a little bit. They will follow each other off of a cliff. They wander and get lost all the time. They're helpless, and they require the constant care of a shepherd to be taken care of. Jesus sees this large crowd that had followed and ran ahead on their way to rest and solitude, and Jesus sees them with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And I want to pause on that for a second because I don't want to miss out on the opportunity for us to receive from that. Some of us are here this morning trying to repair our relationship with God, asking questions about Jesus, trying to find God. And if you're in that place, it's common to wonder what Jesus would think of you. 
And that's whether or not you've ever considered yourself a Christian. Maybe you feel broken or scarred, mistakes made, harm done, harassed, helpless, no shepherd. And King Jesus sees you with compassion. The Greek word that's used here is splanknizomai, which translates to a kind of compassion that literally yearns from within his bowels. He sees you running toward him broken and messed up and in need of forgiveness, and his stomach churns with his love for you. He yearns to teach you. He yearns to heal you. He yearns to restore you. And if that's you, I'm here to tell you there's no prerequisite for it to be a recipient of that kind of splanknizomai compassion or his perfect agape love. And later on this morning, I'm going to give some of us a chance to respond if you want to be forgiven, to experience grace and mercy, to repent of your kingdom of the world kind of living, to step into the kingdom of heaven kind of living that Jesus shows us to be with him on earth and in eternity. And there's no better decision that we can, that we can make in this world. The compassion of King Jesus and the invitation into his kingdom living is the hope for our world, and we can be transformed into people who act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. So Jesus is teaching this crowd, and the whole time, these hungry, mourning the loss of their friend disciples are waiting around. So another moment of true transparency and honesty in the room. Are you ready? Brace yourselves. Raise your hand if you've ever waited around on someone who's taking too long to wrap up a conversation. Raise your hand. If it's your spouse, don't look at them. They know who they are. They know who they are, right? These disciples are tired. They're hungry. They're exhausted. And finally, one of them speaks up. They say, this is a remote place, and it's already very late. Smooth move, right? The disciples are saying, it's late. It's getting dark. Light bulbs haven't been invented yet. There are no McDonald's drive throughs for miles. We need to let these folks go home so they can buy themselves something to eat. In other words, they need to eat, but so do we. Remember us, Jesus? Remember the whole, we're going to go on our vacation and rest? And Jesus' answer, I love it, is hilarious. This is what Jesus says. You give them something to eat. What? Jesus, that would take $30,000. Don't you remember you just sent us on a missions trip without any luggage or money? Who do you think we are? Right? They were not wealthy men. Many of them left behind comfortable jobs and comfortable lives to literally follow Jesus around Jerusalem and Judea on foot without money and increasingly at the behest of the religious leaders and the Roman rulers of their day. So Jesus asked them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. I can imagine that what transpired next was some of the most passive-aggressive loaf counting that has ever taken place, right? They're hungry, they're angry, they're hangry, so they come back and they say, we have five and two fish. And this is the backdrop that Jesus uses to do the impossible. It's when his cousin has just been murdered, his disciples got back from their missions trip, they have no money, no luggage, they're tired, they're hungry, they're mourning the loss of their friend, and when they try to casually help Jesus along toward dismissing the crowd, he pins the problem on them. You feed them. So what in the world is Jesus doing here? The lesson that Jesus teaches the crowds winds up being the lesson for the disciples. They're so concerned with themselves They've forgotten to have compassion on the crowds. They're obedient enough to wait on Jesus, but they're tired and hungry, and all they want is to rest themselves. 
And friends, this is a good word for Christians who want to have a thriving personal relationship with Jesus that builds into personal ministry that yields fruit. As broken human beings, it's not hard for us to find very good meaning and well-sounding excuses to run from a crowd of sheep without a shepherd. We're tired. Some of us have very full calendars. Most of us do. Some of us have kids, and they take a lot of time. Some of us are single parents. Some of us work way more than 40 hours. Some of us have surprisingly full calendars in our retirement. Some of us are caring for sick relatives or are sick ourselves. And the list could go on and on and on. Not only do our frantic and frenetic paces of life get in the way, but then we have to deal with our own broken hearts that often, if we're really honest, we're not very quick to want to love self-sacrificially in a way that takes time and resources. It's easier to look the other way. And I'm here this morning to tell you, it's right in the mess of your life that Jesus wants to perform his miracle. If you feel like all you've got are five loaves and two fish, you are potentially at the doorway of a breakthrough that can bless you and those around you. You don't need a million dollars and a free calendar to have a fruitful personal ministry. All you need are crumbs and the compassionate power of Jesus. So let's see what happens next. It's right in this place, at this intersection of having little to offer, but yet being near to King Jesus, that Jesus chooses to perform one of his greatest miracles. Jesus takes the bread, looks to heaven, gives thanks, and then has the disciples distribute the meal to the 5,000 men there, and all were satisfied. How incredibly beautiful. Our sometimes apprehensive offering of five loaves and two fish is enough for Jesus to multiply to feed the, mass, the masses. These disciples simply offered what little they had. To us, that might be our full calendar, a very tired body, very limited resources, and the giftings and strengths and privileges that God has given us. God will take what little we have and use it for his glory, if only we are willing. But Jesus wasn't done. He had one more trick up his sleeve. Once all the thousands had eaten, there were 12 baskets left over. 12 disciples, 12 baskets. Do you see it? There's a lesson in these loaves. When we give what little we have to Jesus, not only can he multiply and bless those around us, but he has enough to bless us with his abundance. Our gift in return is a basket full of leftovers. And Jesus, in his infinite wisdom and compassion and love, not only cares for the recipients of our personal ministry, but will give far more than we can ever ask or imagine to us. And now let me be clear. This isn't some sort of prosperity gospel or a guarantee that our lives will be without hardship or persecution. Far from it. Many of these 12 disciples would eventually die as martyrs. Hardship and persecution are expected. But the invitation is clear. Take a step toward Jesus with our trust, our lives, and our personal ministry, and we get to witness a miracle to those we minister to, but also to ourselves. And that has been true for me and us in, in more ways than I can count. When Olivia and I decided to sign the lease on an apartment in Fullerton five years ago to move to Fullerton, we were leaving behind Olivia's job that she loved, a church that we loved, and I was starting out as a missionary with no funding. 
And it felt like in many ways, we were bringing the little crumbs that we had to Fullerton. And at that time, I was going to start a ministry at Cal State Fullerton that had about 10 existing students in it, in the InterVarsity chapter. And in that time since, God has helped Olivia stay um, and work. He's helped fund the ministry, and let me tell you, some pretty miraculous ways. And we've seen the ministry grow from those few students five years ago to now two campuses that last year had 169 involved students in 15 Bible studies. Praise the Lord. And in fact, yeah. And to truly give all the glory to God, in the past five years, we've seen 228 college students decide to follow Jesus at Cal State Fullerton, Fullerton College in Cyprus. And we're starting this next ministry, next, uh, this next year of ministry next fall. And I want to personally invite you, we're doing a prayer walk at the end of August on a Saturday, the 25th at 5. We'll be gathering at Cal State Fullerton to pray. Our students will all be there. And we love inviting churches and our local church communities and friends and family to come. And yes, you can bring your pets. Just come and pray with us on that last Saturday in August at 5. Also, um, I'd love to in invite some of you to join my prayer letter list. I love sending out monthly letters asking for folks to fuel this ministry with prayer, inviting God to bring us power. But the joy of entering into Jesus' kingdom math is that like the disciples, my family has even had our own basket of abundance. God has blessed us with an incredible daughter, Anna. We've had our basic needs cared for. And while it hasn't been without hardship or pain, God has given us far more than we could ever ask or imagine and has forged a life for us that was better than we could have ever created ourselves. So what does this mean for us this morning? First, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We won't be able to care for those around us unless we are becoming more like Jesus, filled with his compassion for others, rooted in our time that we spend with him in prayer and scripture and the like. If you want to live a life of influence where you bless others, spend time with Jesus. He will fill you with his spirit. Second, we need to take the next step into personal ministry. And let me tell you, the key word here is next step. Each one of our steps will look different and be in different directions. Whether you serve often or you never have before, I want to invite you, what is that next step? God may have already tugged on your heart to serve with the children's ministry or to help youth or college. He may have put a co-worker or a friend on your heart. There may be a ministry that he's invited you to start or to participate in. I heard from an alumni friend of our Cal State Fullerton InterVarsity chapter that her mom loves cross-stitching, you know, those circular things, the cross-stitching. She loves them so much, she goes to these, like, cross-stitching clubs and has cross-stitching friends and realized that this was kind of, this was her people group. And now she's realized that I can get to know them personally, get to know their lives, and be in a position where I can share the love of Jesus with my cross-stitching friends. How cool is that? So no matter the size of the step, or how many steps you've already taken, what's the next one for you? What's the next step going to be? And let me tell you, there will be dozens and hundreds of reasons why we can rationalize it away. And, put, and I want to invite you instead to put Jesus' crazy kingdom math to the test. See if he can use your five loaves and two fish, and see if he might just have a basket of leftovers for you by the end. He is compassionate, and he loves risking with you. And third, we need to be right with God. 
You may be here trying to repair your relationship with God or wondering if God would ever take you back into his eternal family. Or maybe you've never considered yourself a Christian before in your life. The good news is that God created a perfect world. He created a world that we were in right relationship with each other and the world and with God. And yet somewhere along the way, we decided to do things our own way. And in rebelling against God, we created a chasm between us and God, but also between us and the world and each other. And it brought us to the broken, messed up world that we live in today. And we're all contributors in it. But the good news is that God sent his son Jesus to come and usher in a new kingdom to show us a new way of life. He lived a perfect life and then died on a cross in place of all of our sin and our shame and our guilt. And it was in resurrecting three days later, back to life, that he showed us that he has the power over sin and death. And if we just believe in him and confess with our mouths, that he is our Savior and our Lord. He wants to come and bring full forgiveness and grace and mercy by faith alone. There's nothing else you have to do. All you have to do is receive it. And the best part is from there, he then invites us into this personal ministry to be a part of his redemption of our communities, of our families, of our worlds. And he wants to fill us with his spirit. So I want to invite folks to just bow your heads briefly for a moment. And you know who you are if that's you. And maybe you've been away from God for a long time and you feel like it's time to restore your relationship with him. Or you've never considered yourself a Christian and you realize, I want that kind of grace and mercy and forgiveness in my life. I want to be taught what it looks like to live in this kind of kingdom of heaven. If that's you and you want to be forgiven, every mistake you ever made, just simply raise your hand right now so that I can pray for you. Amen. 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 I see you guys. Anyone else? Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for being the God that when you show up to a place and you're hungry and you're tired and you deserve your rest, that when we come running ahead and mess up your plans, you pause and you have compassion because you see us as sheep without a shepherd. That you give us your compassion and your mercy and your grace and your love, and there's nothing we can do to earn it. You invite us into this crazy, risky life of faith. And Lord, I pray that for the women and men who have raised their hands, that you would help seal this decision, that it wouldn't be that time they raised their hand that one time in that building in your Belinda but it would be the day that propelled them to live a new kind of life in your kingdom. A day where they learn to live rooted in you because apart from you, we can do no thing. And so God, bless us as we think about what it means to follow you, what it means to take a new step in personal ministry. Lord, we thank you that you have loved us before we love you. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus.